Hello and welcome to Ace Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, beat writer Susan Slesser, and on the program today, we welcome starter Daniel Mankton, who discusses his strong start to the season and growing up in a home full of ballet dancers. Chris Bassett then talks to us about his love of out the outdoors and nature, and John Shea and I sit down and discuss the A's recent hot streak, and of course, Shamanaya on the Shea Plus segment. We welcome A's pitcher Daniel Mengden to A's Plus. Mengden, of course, came over in the Scott Casimir deal in 2015 and came up in 2016 has spent parts of 2016-17, and now, of course, 2018 with the A's. Uh, Daniel, you've gotten off to a nice, strong start, kind of continuing on what you did in September. What was the key for you in September? What are you doing now? Uh, I mean, I think it's just getting strike one. I think when I first came up in 16-17, I had a lot of trouble falling behind hitters and a couple walks here and there, a couple hits, and, you know, snowball inning happens. You give up a three or four spot, and you ruin a start. And I feel like, I, like I said, I, just, I was just falling behind, and my number one goal for September was get ahead, limit walks. And kind of doing the same thing this year, just trying to get ahead, stay ahead, limit walks as much as possible because walks turn into runs. Did anybody in particular talk to you last year about different ways of attacking hitters or changing your approach, anything like that? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that the approach changed. It's just more of the execution and the intent, and the, uh, <clears throat> the intent behind the pitch. Uh, you know, I was talking a lot with Madsen when he was here. Uh, he was a great mentor and a great leader. And also the starters have kind of come together. Uh, you know, Kendall's really become a team leader for us. And, you know, Cahill, with all the experience he has as well, you know, we kind of just come together, talk to each other in between bullpens, during bullpens, during the game, and just have learned a lot about each other as pitchers. And I think it's helped us all together as a whole. Your September was so spectacular. What was it like to be in the middle of it, especially after kind of a frustrating year? You started off the year with a foot injury, then you had another injury later, you were up and down. Having like so much success in that final month, what was that like for you? It was almost unimaginary. I was literally trying to go in there and just so, try to make a name for myself, try to earn a spot for next year. That was literally the only goal. And I mean, I, I bought it better than I could have anticipated. Um, and I think just from the start, uh, first start against the Astros, kind of got the confidence up and just kind of went from there and just kept getting better and better every outing. And it seemed like I was almost untouchable, which I couldn't tell you why people were asking me what I did different, what was different. And I said, the only thing I could really think of is just maybe getting ahead, getting strike one, because I mean, I literally felt like I was doing almost the exact same thing. Baseball is such a crazy sport. Now, you had the offseason to build on that, and it was a healthy offseason, too. How much was that a factor for you, having a nice offseason where you could actually do your work rather than, you know, you had some interruptions with injuries, and then you dealt with, I know you had the bullpen session before last season where you incurred your broken foot. Yeah, it was, the last couple of offseasons been pretty stressful and annoying, but this one was just kind of a, a relief coming into spring training, being healthy, feeling good, and just getting ready for the long season and it's just it's so much different guys will tell you some guys come in you know 90 percent 80 percent and throughout the whole year you just kind of banged up but I felt like I came in spring pretty healthy and I feel good right now and I'm just trying to maintain that and everything now you're from Houston um I think a lot of people know um you know you obviously had a fine high school career you guys had a draft party leading up to the draft uh and it turned out you weren't drafted 
drafted. What was that experience like for you? That must have been kind of, kind of a blow. Yeah, it was a little embarrassing um, in a way, but I kind of took it as kind of a you know, blow to the gut and I needed to work a little harder. Um, a lot of teams told me they weren't sure if I was going to be a catcher or pitcher coming out, so ended up not getting drafted, go completely undrafted, which I was totally okay with. Went to Texas A&M. I loved my time at Texas A&M and just gave me an opportunity to get better and figure out what I wanted to do. And overall, if I had to do it again, I hope it, I hope it would happen again because my first thought was I'd be a catcher if I ever made it, and I ended up being a pitcher. So here we are. Um, that probably gave you a little extra incentive. And I know a lot of teams thought that you were pretty firmly committed to Texas A&M. Is that the case? Did that maybe scare some teams off thinking that you were, you might just say no if, even if they came calling? Yeah, I feel like it was kind of half and half. I told them I was pretty locked in to going to college unless I was drafted relatively high. So that could also have been a factor. But overall, like I said, I think it ended up being good for me. Your Texas A&M experience, tell me about that, because your, your friend Parker Ray, who you played with there and is now your roommate in the offseason, tells me that when you first arrived, you were a little bit on the cocky side. Is, is that true? And did you did they kind of like bring you down to size a little bit there? Um, uh, my friends always would tell me, I, I'm kind of the kid that if you're ever kind of messing around, you kind of like, you know, punch someone or kind of like tap someone. I always hit you a little too hard. I'm always just a little too rough here or there. And I think it's just... I mean, I guess I technically wouldn't call it cocky, but it's more of a confidence I always brought with myself, and I don't know, I'm just always me all the time. Uh, I'd say I have a little bit of Sean Mania in me, just my own personal weirdness, and it's just, I don't know, people, like, there's certain things about me that just, I don't know, I feel like just scream me, and I'm just, uh, you know, people people make fun of me because I was homeschooled, maybe tell me it's from that, but, uh, you know. I always, I always feel like I'm, you know, I'm always confident, always, always ready to, you know, throw some smack back and forth if someone's coming at me. Isn't confidence a big part of what you do? I mean, confidence should be in the, you would think in the athletic world, that would be really a prized attribute. Yeah, I, I feel like you have to be confident, and I feel like there's a lot of guys you see on the field, and you might think, man, that guy seems kind of like a prick, or, you know, I, I'm not, like, that guy just way too cocky, but then when you play with him, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I see, like, you know, he's just confident, he's having fun, he really wants to be here, and he's excited, so I feel like, I don't know if that's me, but I feel like I see that in other sides of the field sometimes, and I just think that when you see that confidence, um, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it, 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 has, a, it has an effect. Well, that's it. You kind of remind me a little bit in that respect of Josh Donaldson, who when he was here, it was the same thing. Teams on the other side kind of didn't like him because he was a little bit, you know, looked a little confident, maybe overly confident, but he was so good. But he, like you, kind of does it with like a little bit of a wink, you know? He smiles like if you call him on it. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I know. I'm kind of like, I, lo- I do love me some me kind of guy. Are you kind of like that? Like, you, 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 you know what you're about. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say, like, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. But, you know, here and there... If there's ever a, a little bit of a moment, you might hold on to it for a second, but I'm never going to, you know, be kind of like over the top, like right. me, me, me. Right. You've, but you've got a sense of humor about yourself. Yeah. 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 I think that that's the difference for guys like you and Josh is you like, you know, you kind of do it, but you have fun with it yeah. too. Uh, plus you're good teammates, which I think that's first and foremost. Um, now you, uh, after you uh, were played at Texas A&M, you get drafted by your hometown team, the Houston Astros. What was that experience like for you, having grown up an Astros fan? Uh, it was incredible. I mean, I think my parents, my mom and my dad, my mom was crying. Uh, my dad was ecstatic, jumping off the walls. Um, I was super excited, too. Just, I couldn't even imagine being drafted by the Astros. 
And when my agent called me and told me that, I was almost speechless and just waiting for it to happen after he called me and told me. And then it happened, and it was just a whirlwind of emotions, and I was so happy. Did you get to meet any of sort of your like your childhood heroes while you were playing for the Astros? Did you like talk to anybody, pick anybody's brain? Um, I got to talk to Craig Vigio a little bit. He also coached me in high school. Uh, his son, <clears throat> Connor, Connor and I are the same age, and we played together on a summer league team, and uh, he traveled with us and was a, a special assistant coach in a way. And then also Lance Berkman has a good connection to where I work out in the offseason, and he comes in there all the time, and we talk to him. And Andy Pennant's son also comes and works out uh, where, we, where we work out, and also Roger Clemens' son. So, I mean, there's so many guys all around – so many guys all around that I've kind of have been able to talk to, get to know just a little bit, and it's just been great, you know, just seeing those guys come back and seeing them always being around. It's just, it's awesome just looking up to them and, you know, thinking I, I could be there one day. Right. It kind of gives you a sense of, I could do this, and, and you also see how to, like, conduct yourself, too. You see how they go about their business. How important was that just to sort of see them in their everyday life, having grown up, you know, watching them? Yeah, just how professional they are, how respectful they are, and you know, they still love the game. I think Lance Berkman was in there. It was uh, it was me, Randall Gritchick, uh, Jaime Garcia, Logan Taylor, and a couple other guys. We were kind of just standing there talking, and Lance just talked hitting for about 20, 25 minutes, and we were just standing there. About, everyone was about to leave, but everyone that walked by kind of just slowly stopped and just kind of stopped and started listening. And it started out with, I think, me and Randall, and Jaime came, Logan came, and I want to say Colby came. And or no, Casey, Casey, and uh, Casey Clemens. And it was just he was just sitting there talking about hitting and what he thought about, and we all just kind of sat there and just listened and just I was just I just like listening to hitters, especially hitters like Lance and hitters that have been there. I just like hearing what they think and what they do on certain counts. Because I feel like as hitters and as pitchers, we give each other both too much credit. That oh man, he's on this or he's on that, and and uh, vice versa. But it was just incredible just sitting there listening and just enjoying it and just taking in everything I can well as a when you were in high school you were also a very good hitter um does that does that knowledge does that kind of help you now too and not and it certainly helped you in interleague play because you got a hit I mean I wouldn't I appreciate you saying very good hitter I would say I was probably an average hitter um you know I can hit a fastball it's pretty much about it um but uh yeah I think it helps having that experience in high school and college to, to be able to swing the bat a little bit and you know I love interleague games I've uh, you know, I, I love getting a hit. I love messing with the guys and, uh, you know, being out there at BP with everybody. It's really fun. really gets me going. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it might give me a little bit more of an advantage. I, I feel like most guys have hit growing up and stuff, but I guess hitting at the college level would probably be the biggest thing. Hitting in the SEC was tough. Um, now, you got traded from the Astros. Was that initially a little bit of a shock, especially being a hometown guy? Yeah, uh, we knew the Astros uh, in 2016, right? 15. Or 15. 2015, they were kind of making a push, and we knew trades were going to happen, and we were all kind of talking about it. But everyone and myself thought I might be a little safe being kind of the hometown boy. And all of a sudden, you know, I get a phone call early in the morning and say I was straight to the A's. And uh, me and Jacob walk across the field, and I end up pitching against the, the high affiliate of the Astros three days later. I mean, it was, it was pretty weird, but, you know, it's business, and... You know, I, I got to do what I got to do. Now, I, I when it was the trade was first announced, it, they almost made it sound like Jacob Nottingham and then this other guy a little bit. It was like not quite a player to be named, but uh, he, I think, was the kind of sort of name prospect in it. 
did you take any incentive out of that or just the in, any incentive out of being traded period um whenever they always say whenever someone trades for you it means they have interest in you and yeah i might have been the second piece behind jacob nottingham or however you, however they worded it i mean that didn't really bother me i didn't really look into that that much um but i mean yeah i knew they were interested in me and the astros were stacked all throughout their minor league system and i was at first you know i was a little bummed that i got traded from the astros of course and then after talking to my agent and stuff like that, he said this is a good opportunity for me. And, you know, if I throw well within a year or two, I could be in the big leagues. And, you know, push goes to shove. A lot of injuries. I started throwing well, and I'm, I get my shot in 2016. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, uh, the the You seem like a really good fit for Oakland, too. You know, you are a little different. You've got the quirky delivery. You've got the mustache. Did you, once you got to the organization, did you kind of think, yeah, on a personal level, this is a nice fit, too? Yeah, um, a lot of my friends and family told me maybe it was fate that I got traded to the A's with the Raleigh Fingers mustache and everything. Um, you know, the corky wind-up, everything that goes along with it. Um, you know, I think it's been awesome. I love it here. I think the coaching staff and all the players, it's just we have a good, tight group here, and it's been nothing but fun since I've gotten here. When did you start with a double pump within the wind-up? Uh, that kind of just came with, uh, actually, it was like around 2015, 2016, um, where I really didn't even notice I was kind of doing it at first, and I was kind of doing it in bullpens, trying to just get my feet my, my feet set on the mound and everything, and I just kind of happened to keep doing it and doing it over and over again. And some of our hitters, uh, it was Ryan and Matt Olson, were kind of like, hey, can you stop doing that? Like, I don't like that. <laughs> and he kind of was telling me, like, yeah, I hate when you do that because I can't get my timing. And I was kind of like, okay, well... If you don't like it, guys with leg kicks, and I was throwing off timing and stuff, so I kind of just gelled into it and started doing a little more mixing in here and there, and you know, it just started working. Uh, and with your mustache, have you talked to Raleigh Fingers much about it? He has been around a little bit more this year. Have you guys compared mustaches? Do you ever look at photos of him and get ideas, or do you talk mustache wax or anything like that? Uh, we've talked some mustache wax here and there. Uh, he actually is, uh, he gets mad at me that I don't do it up every day. Really? Yeah, he always asks me, why don't you just you know, curl it up today? I tell him, no, I only do it on my days that I pitch. Well, why do you do that? Because like, when, when it's my day to pitch, I want the, I want our team to know when they see the curled up mustache, it's my day and I'm ready to go. So that's my reasoning behind it. He always gets really, really aggravated that I don't do it every day. Full time. Oh, yeah, he wants me to do it full time. I told him no. Uh, now you mentioned being homeschooled um that's a little unusual for an athlete especially typically kids are going to school and playing in youth leagues with their school and all of that and i know that your siblings are ballet dancers and dancers and you took some classes dance classes too when you were a kid correct but what explain what your sort of like growing up in your family and being homeschooled was like especially with the, the dance aspect yeah, it was different. Uh, you know, I was the athlete. I was playing soccer, basketball, baseball, swimming. I was just, I was playing a sport every season. I was always moving. I was always going. And uh, you know, they all, I think they, they, they played a little bit of sports here and there. They played some soccer, um, but they played some baseball. But they never really grabbed onto it or anything. And my older sister started dancing, and she loved it. And my mom put the other girls in it. They started liking it. And my brother kind of struggled with sports and wasn't a huge fan of it he started dancing they all took off and danced and they all loved it so my mom was like well why don't you give it a try and I was like okay I think I was maybe nine or ten and my mom made me dance for a year still have video on VHS oh I hope somebody can find that 
Oh, they, my, my siblings have it if you want some dirt on me. Um, yeah, there's a couple. Uh, I'm in tights and one. We got a nice ballet routine, a tap, a jazz. You have about a lot of them in there. But uh, yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, it, I think it, um, it, it was different. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. It's just, I guess, it probably helped us as a family and as siblings, you know, to really hate each other and really love each other at the same time, being around each other 24-7. But, uh, you know, we were always moving, and they were always dancing. I'm always, my dad was with me, and my mom was with the dancers. And it was kind of just, just get our, it was just kind of, like, you know, go to school, get it done, and go play baseball. I was always, if you ask my mom or dad, the moment I was done with my school, I was outside with, uh, you know, I'd, I would either be out in front throwing a ball off the curb, or I'd be in the backyard hitting off the tee, the dog would retrieve it, bring it back, or I'd be hitting into a net, or I'd be throwing into a net, or just... My, I was always doing baseball stuff, and I would literally uh, get the newspaper out and almost recreate the game in the front yard no off, the, off the curb with the ball almost, or try to play the game with the same lineups and kind of go through like a, I guess an exaggerated game. And awesome. the neighbor, I think the neighbor thought I was insane, but um, <laughs> you know, it's just something to do, and just always, I was always moving, always wanting to do stuff. That's um, your friend Parker told me you're kind of the black sheep of the family because you're the non-dancer. But he also said that you might not necessarily be as coordinated. I think he, I'm saying a little nicer. I think than he did. Was that is that fair to say? I mean, I guess technically I would have to be the least coordinated of the bunch. But um, you know, they're unbelievable how athletic and how just they could do just about anything. And it's it's pretty incredible to watch them dance and. I mean, I have a, I'd say I have a little bit of coordination, but nowhere near the amount they have dance-wise. Hey, your brother trained with the Bolshoi Ballet, correct? Yes, he danced in Russia for an entire year with the Bolshoi Ballet over there. Uh, and, I mean, I can't imagine how strict that is over there. They're, they're hardcore over there, and, uh, you know, to have an invite just to come there, it was, it was incredible for him. At, I think he was only 17 years old when he got the invite, and uh, now he's dancing professionally in the Cincinnati Ballet. So, I mean, he's, he's doing amazing right now. And your sister Rachel um, is got a starring role in the Houston's um, ballet's performance of West Side Story. What's that? Especially being from Houston, and you're going to be pitching in Houston the same night she's performing. What's that like for you and for your family? I think it's incredible. Um, you know, it's I'm really I'm really happy for Rachel. It's her first real big job, and she's worked really hard, and she's got a lot of criticism uh, throughout her career in dance, and. You know, I just, I'm really happy for her to keep grinding, keep going. Her finally got her first job, and uh, she was really, she was really, really sad I couldn't make a performance. She was like, hey, if you want tickets, you better buy them now. I looked at the schedule, and I was like, we're just going to miss you, and we'll be performing on the exact same time. We'll be playing the same time we're performing, and I'd love to watch her. You know, we'll get DVDs, and I'll be able to watch uh, once it comes out and everything, but, you know, I'm really happy for her, and, you know, it's just great uh, being able to see all my siblings succeed, and, uh, you know, enjoy their hopes and dreams. Um, how is your family going to decide which two? Like, is your dad coming to the baseball game? Your mom going to the to the West Side Story, or is it going to be like the old days? Are they going to try to run back and forth because it's going to be like blocks apart? Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's that's a question for them. Uh, I know they might have gone to a few performances already. Um, I think they had some this past weekend, but uh, they might they might sneak out to watch my games. I'm only in town once, but. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how many they've already seen, but I, I know they've gone at least once or twice already. Oh, that's amazing. So we're the A's are in this interesting stretch where it seems like the starting pitching, which was kind of this one question mark coming into this season, you guys are sort of starting to really come together. Um, 
led by Chamanaya, the, the no-hitter he threw. How much you had to go the next game, which must have been a kind of strange following a no-hitter. But how much is that a, sort of an inspiration for the rest of you? And, and what was that like starting the next day after a no-hitter? I mean, I told Sean I gave it the hit to Jackie right at the start. I just wanted to get it over with. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want any of the, uh, you know, any more of the spotlight or anything. I was like, I'm just going to get it over with real quick. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, Sean's been throwing incredible, and our pitching staff is coming together really well. Uh, you know, Kendall's been struggling a little bit, but once Kendall gets going, if Kendall right now is doing technically uh, not the best out of all of us at the moment, that's good. When Kendall turns it on and the rest of us keep going, I mean, we're going to be like, – we, we knew going into spring training we, weren't, we didn't have a problem. Everyone, you know, uh, media and everybody was saying, you know, that's a big question mark and stuff like that. But in, our, in the back of our heads, we knew we knew what we had to do. We, we know what we have to accomplish or what we can accomplish when we execute everything. And I think Kendall's turning the page here. Uh, his last start, I thought he threw really well. And, you know, one bad pitch, and that's, that's an outing. And that happens to everybody. And I think like what Sean did was just absolutely incredible. What Cahill's done, Triggs, uh, myself, I know we're keeping us in ball games. Our offense has been electric these last couple of days, and when we're clicking in all three, when we have the defense, offense, and pitching rolling, we're gonna be we're gonna be tough to mess with. And uh, I think a lot of teams and a lot of people don't even give us any looks, which is totally fine with us. And we're 100% okay with that. And when we come knocking on the door and we show up and we beat the crap out of you, you know, sorry. <laughs> That's a perfect way to end it. Thanks for joining us, Daniel Magnan, on Ace Plus. Thank you. We welcome Chris Bassett to the Player's Choice segment of Ace Plus. Chris, I understand that you are an avid outdoorsman. Tell us about that. How long have you been uh, an outdoorsman, and, and what sort of things do you enjoy doing? Uh, ever since childhood, and I mean, like you kind of said, anything outdoors really. I mean, it started when I was. Was like a walk, really. I think my grandpa kind of instilled that in me because uh, a little awkward thing, not awkward, but different. That it, he taught me like how to like raise butterflies and stuff. So like I used to like grow up and go get eggs and raise them. And so yeah, I was always outdoors when I was a little kid. So, so I think sweet. it kind of just started from there and blossomed into what it is now. Can you still raise butterflies? No, it's <laughs> it's a summer thing, and it's kind of hard to do that during baseball season. So, yeah, uh, it's mostly like monarch butterflies. So, um, I don't I don't even know if they're. I mean, I'm sure there are around California, but in Ohio, when I was from, they were everywhere. So. Now, um, growing up in Ohio, where where did you go for outdoors activities? I mean, I lived like on Lake Erie, so um, obviously the lake. But I mean. You could find me in any woods or river or whatever it may be that day. So yeah, I was always outside getting in trouble. So it was always it was always fun for me and my friends, but I'm sure my mom in the laundry it wasn't that great. <laughs> um, so now as an adult, what sort of things do you do in the off season in the outdoors? Uh, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking. Um, we obviously have a unique um, job when it comes to travel and able to see different things. And I mean. It provides a lot of different just outdoor activities that are just pretty unique when it comes to obviously different locations, different states, and kind of take full advantage of that. Do you try to get out and go see oh, some yeah. of the natural wonders? What like what what spots mm -hmm. do you recall that you've gone on, especially when the A's are on a road trip? Um, I love spring training mostly because I mean you have Sedona, you have Flagstaff, you have Grand Canyon. Um, there's a lot of really cool hikes, especially around 
our whole Scottsdale Mesa area that we absolutely love. But I mean, in Oakland, I mean, we go like to the Redwoods and all that stuff. So um, we've been a lot of places, yeah. But obviously, the Grand Canyon's kind of hard to trump. Uh, now, when you fish, are you a particular kind of fisherman? What do you usually like to go try to catch? Uh, for most, mostly it's um, like inshore, like bass fishing and stuff, just with friends. But I mean, I've done some offshore fishing for like tuna and stuff, and that's that's fun. But um, it's more just just an enjoyment with friends, more or less, than actual like a hardcore hobby. Which I mean, I've been around enough people that it is a it's like an obsession. I mean, our gel res, I've went fishing with him a couple times, and he's, I mean, he's head over heels about fishing, so it's just a little different aspect of, like, my like and his, like, obsession with love with fishing, so. Now, in the baseball offseason, the weather is often not quite as good in the Midwest, mm-hmm. so what, what sort of things do you do then if it's on a cold day sure. in the Midwest? Well, l- luckily enough, my wife's from North Carolina, so we're mostly there now, so, um, yeah, so the weather's not that bad, but when we're in Ohio, it's bundled up and stuff outside. I mean, I actually kind of love the cold, and she hates it, so, I mean, it's a lot of sledding, a lot of snow, snowmobiling and stuff, so, I mean, it's just, I don't know, anything to get outdoors, really. Um, we've done ice fishing and stuff, and it's just, get outdoors. Ice fishing sounds crazy. You drill the hole, right? Yeah, and then you yeah. sit sit there yeah, in like a little bad, hut. Yeah, because the hut you can you can actually warm up to like 60 degrees or so. So you can actually like wear a t-shirt and just sit around and just talk and hang out and yeah, it's that, fun. That still sounds too cold for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris Bassett, great stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Time for the Shea Hay segment. We welcome John Shea, the Chronicles national baseball writer, back to the podcast. John, uh, the first thing I think we need to talk about is the the A's recent hot streak. Well, what do you make of the way the A's have been playing here um, from about mid-April on? Yeah, great stuff. We all knew in spring training they would hit, right? But we didn't really know that they would pitch this way. I mean, four in a row during that one spell, uh, moved over 500 for the first time. They won eight out of nine. And, uh, you know, two games over 500 for the first time since April of 16. That's pretty significant. And this is a team that struggled much of last year, struggled much of the year before, all these last place finishes in a row. It's been an up and down season. The first, you know, five series they did not win. And then suddenly there was Boston, and they just cleaned up there. And, uh, you know, great homestand with the, the freebie crowd and, you know, 47,000 people or whatever it was. And uh, looking back to spring training, uh, three starting pitchers going down with Cotton and Blackburn and even the, the main prospect, Puck. And now they're doing it with starting pitching as well. During that, I mean, what was it, eight out of nine wins – before before the Graveman loss. And it, it, you, you look at the stats, a couple of key stats I'd noticed. I mean, before that, in the 15 games, their ERA was over five. And in those nine games, eight of which they won, it was it was just three. And in six of those nine, the, the you know, the uh, the starting pitchers gave up one or no runs. So it's it, it's it's a run that we didn't really expect with with the rotation. A big question anyway but then when you lose three of of the starting pitchers and and you see these results it's pretty impressive 
Shamanaya obviously is the one that sort of um, really, I think, kick-started the, the rotation into gear with the season he's had in, in general. But, of course, then he throws a no-hitter against the team that uh, entered the Coliseum set with a 17-2 and record. Uh, we we've always known he's had special stuff. Uh, what to you is the difference for Shamanaya this year? Well, I, I keep getting back to that that metal part of his game, where uh, a year ago, two years ago, when he claimed I was just happy to be here, uh, he he was much heavier. He just depended on his athleticism and his talent to get him by, which I'm sure worked as an amateur and into much of the minor leagues. But at this at this level, it's a lot different. You've you've it's a metal game, really, and. I think he's tackled that. It's it's a it's a situation where a year ago, a couple of guys on with one or no outs, and mentally it would it would just be too much for him, and he would collapse and and try to try to make pitches he wasn't capable of pitching. And now uh, the the velocity is a lot uh, down a little bit, but he, he's become a legitimate three pitch pitcher instead of well, I'm just going to try to blow the heater by him. And when you look at a season in whole, I mean, if you're an East Coast person and you got to bed early that night and and you looked at the pitching matchups and it was it was Manaya against Chris Sale. And then you wake up and say, hey, there was a no hitter in Oakland. So, oh, yeah. What, what did Sale do? It must have had a great. No, it wasn't Sale. It was Manaya. It's Manaya. That guy who always uh, had the high ERAs and was hurt all the time. Yeah, that guy. Well, you look at his year this year. And you look at the strikeout-to-walk ratio, 30 Ks and uh, six walks in 36-plus innings. That's that's all-star stuff. Are you kidding me? That's uh, it's it's great to see. On the on the flip side, Kendall Graveman's still trying to sort of find his footing this season. He's made some interesting changes. Uh, you know, he's modified his delivery. He no longer goes over his head. Uh, his changeup is much improved. And in fact, uh, at Texas, uh, he threw more changeups than he threw sinkers. So um, that's a, for him is an extraordinary. Uh, he still has, is really yet to get back on track. I think the A's have a little bit of a short leaf, leash on him. Has he done enough to avoid demotion for the time being, or does he need to start looking over his shoulder? Brett Anderson is pitching <laughs> extremely well at Nashville. Well, I think the the great thing is he's kind of buried in this rotation of of uh, other people doing well. So may, maybe they can afford a, a clunker every fifth start for now as he gets his stuff back together. You noted and he noted there was improvement in that game. And your great stat about the changeups didn't didn't you write that he threw nearly half changeups? Yeah, yeah, fifty. I mean, that's incredible. Changeups, yeah, out of one hundred and twelve pitches, yeah. Yeah, and, and Mangden uh, earlier uh, said the same thing about his change. He felt like he was throwing at every other pitch. And I, I actually looked it up, and it was maybe a quarter to a third of his uh, total pitches were change-ups. And I said, man, that's still significant. But when you throw half of them, I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's Tre- Trevor Hoffman-ish. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, I'm, you don't want to compare that because he's a closer <laughs> and he's a Hall of Famer. But but it's it's, um, you know, the evolution of a guy like this is to rely on a on a on a pitch that often and mostly to have results with it is pretty good. So I, I my guess is they would stick with him a little longer, even though Anderson is pitching well, just to see. Uh, I mean, you, you don't want to you don't want to pull the plug on a guy who's shown improvement, a, a guy who started opening day the last two years. 
Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Um, Jed Lowry um, has got off to as good a start, maybe better than just about anybody in the league. Uh, to me, one of the most inter- – I mean, I, I always kind of wonder if he had been healthy throughout his career, so many freak injuries and, and broken bones and things like that, um, what sort of player would we be looking at right now? People seem a little surprised by what he's doing, but when Jed Lowry has been healthy, he's always been a pretty consistent hitter. And he's a switch hitter, which is a something of a lost art these days. You don't see as many switch hitters. He's very consistent from both sides of the plate. This, this kind of shows you, I think, how valuable a good switch hitter is. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the start that Jed Lowry's gotten off to here? Yeah, your words there reminded me of an interview I had with him last year when he talked about switch hitting. And, you know, first of all, he's he's kind of the the funky guy who wears flaps on both sides of his helmet. And who does that? Nobody does that. (laughs) If you're a right handed hitter, you have it on the left side. If you're a left handed hitter, you have it on the right side. But he he wears them like minor league wears them, like high school and college kids wear them with with flaps on both sides. It it looks a little different for for a veteran. And uh, but but that's what he does, because he says it's so much easier. Why carry around two helmets instead of one? Well, it makes sense, I guess. But he also said that. You're going to see fewer switch hitters because with the shift and and the fact that you know they overload the one side and, and say, so, well, maybe just go with your natural side and and try to spray the ball and make good contact. Uh, he he said, you know, his dad made him a switch hitter as a kid and he just kept doing it. And this year he's been a very good one. Uh, but but it was interesting to hear him talk about it. it. Says, well, maybe maybe you don't see so many in the future because they're they're shifting the left-handers and makes it so tough to hit. But it doesn't seem to be stopping him at all. And uh, it's cool to see. You know, you remember the playoff game against Kansas City a few years ago when he was playing shortstop. It just didn't seem the right position for him. And he's really set, settled in as a everyday second baseman. And and making the plays defensively and he doesn't show great range, but he makes every play. He turns every double play. He, he doesn't make the silly error. It's all about making the smart play, making the routine play. And, and that really has elevated his overall game because he, he, you know, he's not a big guy, but he's got power. He's got gap power. Of course, he's got doubles power. We saw it last year and we're seeing it this year, but it, but it's an interesting thing because the whole team is made up of young guys for the most part, big-time prospects moving up, especially on the corners. And then your three-hitter and your best hitter is a guy that we thought might have been traded a couple times already. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at the deadline this year. I've got to think if the A's are anywhere in striking distance, they've got to hang on to him. He's been their best player last year and, and this year. Uh, and to me, he's he's getting better. He's he's added a little bit of speed. He beat out a hit in a key moment in the, in the ninth inning in the first game in Texas. I swear it's the fastest I've ever seen him run. When I looked up for a second, I actually was not sure it was Jed Lowry. I thought maybe I was in the wrong spot in the order or something, and that he was just flying. And Marcus Simeon said after the game, yeah, he's been working really hard on his speed. So kind of a, a reminder, at 34, you can continue to get better. And that was... Uh, what do you think What do you think is the key to his turnaround offensively? Well, you know, it really was last year. I think it's health. I really think he's... Okay. A, he's I th- I've always thought he's an outstanding hitter. Great approach. He always has really, you know, long at bats. He's, uh, you know, when he does go into slumps, it tend- he tends to be one of those guys who maybe thinks a little too much and and but when he's when he's on he's he's as solid as as any hitter you know as you said 
might not have the power of some guys, but he, he's a second baseman. So uh, I think for, I think the A's are, have got themselves a, a wealth of riches at the position because Franklin Barreto is ready. He's ready to be a big leaguer. I hear it all the time from fans when Barreto comes up to fill in as a backup and doesn't play. Oh, this is retarding his development. No, he's he's ready to go now, and certainly he's going to welcome any big league time he can get. Um, but Jed Lowry, you're not going to push Jed Lowry off that spot right now. So let's move on to maybe some of the the national news of the week, since you're our national writer, Brian Price, who, of course, is, uh, went to Cal um, and is one, one of Bob Melvin's closest friends, uh, was fired very early in the season by the Reds. They, you know, they got, did get off to a terrible start, but uh, that, that to me, was a surprise. How, wh- how, what did you think of that move? Yeah, you're right. And, yeah, he's a local kid, not only Cal, but a San Francisco native. He grew up in Mill Valley, Tamil Pius High School, uh, he's, I think he still has the record at Cal for most appearances. He, he was, he pitched all four years there or most starts perhaps. But anyway, it's, it, it was a situation where, you know, the, the guy with local roots and I just never thought he got an opportunity to manage a decent team in Cincinnati. This was his fifth season and you can really blame ownership. You can blame the management group that put together the roster for him. I mean, he is a pitching coach through and through a well-respected one, as Bob Melvin will tell you, for three different teams. So you can't blame him for this five-and-a-half ERA that they had last year and this five-plus ERA they had this year. It's it's a matter of uh, not drafting, developing, or acquiring uh, pitchers that can you know really help this team with maybe unproven prospects plus Johnny uh, Joey Votto to to get over the top at least you know push a 500 record and you know injuries really hurt him a lot but I I mean it's it's it, it, it was sad and and you know what I wouldn't be surprised I mean the A's already have a young uh uh pitching coach that they love but it, it you know Brian Price could be an asset at some level whether he's an advisor, and you know, I'm sure Bob Melvin has already put in a word with management and say, hey, if this guy ever wants to come back to baseball, uh, let's make Oakland, you know, the the first chance. I mean, I, he lives in Arizona, but like I said, the Bay Area roots. I think it would be a cool story. Uh, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if he's a pitching coach later on, or even a manager on a better team. Uh, you know, right now, I think he's moving. I think his daughter's getting married. He's got some personal issues. He, he's being paid through the rest of the year. So it, it's probably a nice situation for him to kind of move away from the red situation, which which really was kind of all about numbers. And sometimes the management over manages the manager and forces him to do some things that maybe you'd be better served doing on instinct. And, you know, we know all, we know all these stories that uh, some of these teams trying to make out the lineup for the manager. But, you know, I, I, you know, I really like Brian Price, obviously, and Bob Melvin does, too. Just, just one quick story on that. Melvin uh, and, and Price are so close that you remember a few years ago when Melvin was, was fired uh, early in the season as well from the, the Diamondbacks managing gig. And Price, instead of staying, uh, they they hired AJ Hinch who had zero experience and and they really wanted to go by the numbers and and Hinch was a kind of a complete flop there uh, excuse me for saying that he's a Stanford <laughs> guy and all but but uh, you know he really didn't get his act together until he went to Houston and then all of a sudden he's in the World Series but it really wasn't working in Arizona and Price Price walked out when they fired um, uh, Melvin 
and and I thought, I thought that was pretty noble. Yeah, that's a that's a very good friend, and I'm a hundred percent with you. I think he, uh, Brian Price winds up back in the Bay Area. I think for sure in some capacity, and uh, probably with Belton, Bob Melvin at some point in his career down the line. Um, DA's a little bit of stadium news we should address. Um, they are back now considering Howard Terminal. It seems um, they've been saying all along that they're parallel tracking the two, the Coliseum and Howard Terminal. We know all the headaches that potentially come with Howard Terminal. Dave Cavill has floated the idea of a gondola from downtown Oakland to uh, the the site at Howard Terminal, uh, going over those live railroad tracks and and uh, some of the other uh, obstacles between. You know, they, they talk downtown stadium. Or just a reminder, that is not a downtown stadium. It's not really walkable from downtown. So um, uh, it's it's interesting that they really are. They they now have sort of exclusive negotiating rights, both with for the Coliseum land, which they've made an offer on and to build at Howard Terminal. What's your sense now of, of where things stand with the two sites? You know, I just keep looking at the Coliseum and saying that's that's the most fe- feasible. Even though Lou Wolf once told me the Coliseum is not feasible, Howard Terminal is not feasible. Yeah, uh, Nothing was feasible, but now suddenly things are feasible. I mean, there's no EIR at Howard Terminal. There's no parking. There's no traffic flow. A ton of work would need to be done, and we've seen mayor after mayor kind of strike out. Libby Schaff has good intention, nice words, but we haven't really seen any action yet. No, we haven't seen a, a shovel in the ground, obviously. But, you know, meantime, we, we heard the we heard all that noise from Portland the other day, right, when yeah. they're saying we're becoming a legitimate uh, uh, Major League Baseball town. You know, we used to laugh at these second- and third-tier markets like Charlotte or, or San Antonio or even Las Sacramento, Vegas. you know, in Portland and Vegas, right? Uh, you know, you know, Montreal is, is, but you know, all these sites, all these cities are are growing. They're growing markets and they're becoming more significant. So, you know, I think we just have to stop laughing and start listening because um, Rob, Manf- Rob Manfred's talking about a 32-team uh, Major League Baseball outfit instead of 30, and that would all of a sudden bring all these markets into play and you know one of them is portland but you know the columnists up there are writing about the portland days and all this stuff which is kind of premature because manfred is given the you know oakland community a long leash and you know I, I still feel that the baseball owners do not want to give the giants a huge market it would be the biggest market for one team in all of baseball surpassing philly surpassing boston and I, I just don't see that. That's kind of why the owners, uh, I mean, the owners like hanging out in the Bay Area when, when their American League team comes in to play Oakland. So, uh, and that goes for GMs, that goes for players, that goes for everybody. So I, 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 I don't think there's anything to uh, the Portland A's quite yet. Well, here, here's another thing. Uh, all the projections show that the Bay Area is going to pick up another 2 million residents, if you can believe it, over the next 12 years. Um, it's just uh, it, you, the other places are growing. The Bay Area is also growing. People are not going to be moving to San Francisco. There's no more room. We know about the housing crisis. They're mostly going to be going to the East Bay. So uh, mm-hmm. the A's have a very good situation. I think the owners know it. The A's certainly know it. Uh, to me, at this point, I, I honestly, I don't care where they go in, in the Oakland area as long as they stay in the Bay Area. The Coliseum, just for so many practical reasons, so many practical reasons make sense. Mm-hmm. And 
If the A's did not buy that land and build a stadium there, somebody is going to jump on it. They're going to put in a lot of housing, a lot of retail. There's a trans transit stop right there. If you're adding two more million people to the Bay Area in the next 12 years, any housing near transit, any retail near transit is going to be a big deal. Somebody is going to make a an absolute fortune on that piece of land. Uh, if you put a stadium there and you add some housing and some retail, Boy, that could be a really nice destination. You might not have a downtown ballpark, but you're going to have a really good situation. And yet another reminder at Howard Terminal, you can't face the stadium toward the water there because of the sun. So um, mm. there's that, that's yet another issue. John Shea, we will speak again about this, I'm sure, dozens of times this year. And we will talk again next week about the A's and any other pertinent baseball issues. Thank you, Susan. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.